Hello and welcome to the Negotiating Ideas. This is your host Omar Sadr. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Dipali Makapadai, who is an associate professor of global policy at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, University of Minnesota. She also serves as a senior expert at the U.S. Institute of Peace, United States. Her more recent writing is a book review on Carter Markezian's book, The American War in Afghanistan. Prior to that, she wrote an essay, The Taliban Have Not Moderated, An Extremist Regime Is Pushing Afghanistan to the Brink. At the first anniversary of all of the Republic in Afghanistan, I spoke with her about these writings. We discussed the Taliban model of governance, their perception of a state, their ideology, and finally, how to deal with the Taliban. It was a pleasure to record this episode with her, and I hope you enjoy listening to her. Thank you, Dipali, for joining me on this podcast. Um, uh, as we know each other since long time, but since fall of Kabul, um, I think you were on and off uh, in different capacities, in different platforms, through your writings, through your engagement at the policy dialogues. You have remained committed on Afghanistan and you have reflected on Afghanistan. Your most recent writing is a, a review on the American war in Afghanistan, a history which is written by Carter Malkazian. Uh, published on June 27. Prior to that, you wrote a longer essay for the foreign affairs titled uh, The Taliban Have Not Moderated, An Extremist Regime is Pushing Afghanistan to the Brink. Um, let's talk about both of these writings uh, a little bit more. Uh, and if I may ask a question at the beginning, um, in the essay, you're writing that uh, the Taliban have once again deployed their authority in the service of a brutal religiously justified totalitarianism. Um, so I'm interested here to know more if you can elaborate about what do you mean by religiously justified totalitarianism? Sure, absolutely. Well, thank you first, Omar, for having me. It's such, I'm so happy you're doing this podcast. I've really enjoyed the conversations I've heard so far, and it's a pleasure to be on with you. So that essay was an attempt on my part to understand the transformation of a group, and we don't see this that frequently, a group that began as a kind of an insurgency or a militia, became a regime, was overthrown, became an insurgency, and again, through victory, is now in power. And this is, for students of political violence and insurgency, mm -hmm. quite a remarkable achievement and I think what really interested me about the Taliban was there's a kind of simplicity yeah. to their ideology, right, that allows them to which they adhere with real consistency mm. over many decades across different geography, whether they're a fighting force or a ruling force. Of course, there are certain forms of flexibility, and we can talk about that in their approach, but in general, there's an incredible rigidity mm. to their agenda and that, and a cohesion uh, that people who have studied them for a long time point to, which I think comes from this total commitment to erecting and then resurrecting a kind of dystopic reality, their mm. version of what they think perfect Islamic rule would be. Mm. And they it seems to me they've done it again, even though we're in the 21st century, even though Afghanistan has changed so dramatically 
over the decades, and even though it was it has never been a country hospitable to this ideology. This ideology is right. not, as I understand it, indigenous to or organic to this place. They have imposed it again. Well, right. Uh, so you, you talked about a few things, and I think one of the words that you mentioned is about political cohesion of the Taliban. I, I would like to come back to the idea of totalitarianism and uh, how how that ideology has has evolved and shaped, but uh, Taliban uniquely also amongst many other political forces that evolved in the last forty years is, I think, uniquely uh, portraying certain form of political cohesion, uh, irrespective of all of those differences that they have. So you'd assume that this political cohesion is coming t- from their ideology, uh, but do you see it something more on that? Uh, how strangely Taliban are politically cohesive? I mean, this is a really interesting question. You know, in my work in Afghanistan has mostly not been to study the Taliban. So I have, in this regard, drawn a lot on the work of other mm-hmm. scholars who've been looking at this group, but also comparing it to the kinds of groups that I have studied more closely, you know, Mujahideen groups and factions that also went through a transformation from being fighters into being part of a government or assuming a position of rule. Uh And I think what's, what's interesting about the Taliban is, as you said, there are many, I mean, there are many challenges. And for those of us who are watching the insurgency, we knew that, that, for example, there are those who are located in Pakistan versus those who are inside the country. There are those who have, are trying to have, we're trying to have an outward facing view versus those who are committed more to an indigenous project. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are all important differences and they exist in most insurgencies, yeah. you know. But I think what's striking about this group is, and I believe this is the strength of the group and this will ultimately be the cause of its downfall, Mm. is that it maintains a kind of adherence to this ideological project, which means that even when there is turbulence, even when there are transitions in leadership or there are different shifts in strategy, they have a kind of ideological North Star to which they Mm. return. And a lot of other groups, you know, the ones that I've studied, for example, began with particular fighting ideologies and then shifted in their approach and they wanted to be part of the state or they saw opportunities for political transformation, for economic uh, transformation, and they adapted and changed, they accommodated Mm. one another. These are the reasons why I think many, for example, Mujahideen reinvented themselves again and again. Mm. I don't think Taliban is interested in that. I don't think it's capable of that. Mm. And I think we're seeing the consequence of that now, which is, you know, what I described as, it's a very brittle kind of rule, right? Mm. It's very, it's tight and in a certain way, but it can snap. It doesn't bend. It's not flexible. Yeah, it's not flexible at the same time, but I, to my understanding, uh, Taliban ideology is very simplified, for themselves, it's it's one common thread which is bringing all this ideology probably together, and that is the notion to regulate, administer, uh, and coerce society 
towards yes. a particular set of public morality. Um, and, and that is clearly, I think, defined, I suppose, from my experience in 2008, seven when I was doing bachelor's at Kabul University. And so there was a course called Saqafat Islami, Islamic Culture, wherein the faculties were coming from uh, the Department of Theology. So some of the narratives the Taliban present as to, uh, at, the, at this moment, I remember it was somehow it is somehow the same things that uh, faculties of theology try to uh, teach students at Kabul University. For example, the way uh, a woman's position in society should be defined, right? Um, yeah. or, or for example, the Ministry of Vice and Virtue, whatever they uh, try to present as public morality. These are not something new. Uh, this is somehow classic also. Um, and, and it existed in the last 20 years. So I think uh, for Taliban, if you look at their ideology, it, it is a, a, number, a very uh, simplified set of rules. They understand it very well and they want to implement it at any cost. Now, this at any cost is because of their, or as you rightly said, ideological rigidity. So they do not consider cost benefits, what happens to the society, what happens to the state. They understand the importance of a state. Uh, they are so much statist in, in some sense. Uh, but at the same time, what is important is that they use the state in the service of their ideology. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, I learned a lot from studying in the last uh, 10 years or so, I've been studying the Syrian civil war and the mm -hmm. different armed groups in Syria and looking, for example, at the Islamic State and how it governed Raqqa, looking at al-Nusra, Javad al-Nusra, the al-Qaeda affiliate and in, in Idlib province uh -huh. in Syria. And one of the things that's so striking about the Taliban, as you say, it's the narrowness mm. of their state conception of statism, right? So yes, it is using the authority of the state to impose this conception of public order, and to construct a sense of what is public and what is private in a way that is very simplistic and, yeah. and therefore simple, right? And kind of mm. there's a kind of elegance to it. If you, for example, eliminate more than half the society's yeah. role in public life, you have a much smaller frame within which you need to operate. Mm. So then you're now only regulating the public in a male conception of yeah. the public. The female has completely been eliminated. Mm. But there are other ways that it's limited, which are striking when you compare them to other Islamist groups. I mean, you can look at the two I just named, you can look at the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, you can look at Hamas, Hezbollah, that they have, these other groups, unlike the Taliban, have a conception of what they owe their citizens. Yeah. Right? They yeah. have a kind of social contract in which they recognize that they have services and public goods that they need to deliver. Some of them are interested in competing electorally for for popular support. Yes. They perform a kind of legitimacy, whether they have it or not. They feel the need to perform a sense that they represent certain people, that they're concerned about their interests. This, to me, is strikingly different about the Taliban. They seem to have absolutely no concern hmm. about serving the public good beyond this limited conception of what is virtuous, right, and what is problematic. And I think that is that is a 
on the one hand, makes their projects much easier because they don't have to worry about a bureaucracy that can manage, you know, public services. Um, But on the other hand, it means that people are starving, people are not getting employment, people are getting sick, people are unable to acquire travel documents, and so on and so on. And I, I don't see in the 21st century how that is a sustainable model of governing, even beyond the social implications of the conception of vice and virtue. Right. They are not offering anything beyond mm. this dystopic vision of what society should look like. Right, but I, and that seems to me distinguishing as well. Exactly, you're right on that. That's one of the key distinguishing factors. And I suppose on on early June. Uh, the Chief Justice of Taliban, who is one of the hardcore hardliners, Abdul Hakim Haqqani Sharai, he came up with a book, uh, uh, which was, of course, read and reviewed by the group of Islamic clerks, uh, but also endorsed by the Amir al-Mu'mineen. And so in that book, um, the author, um, Abdul Hakim Haqqani, who was also leading the peace talks with the government of Afghanistan, he outlines two types of state um, right at the beginning. And what is what he called Daulat wa hukumat al-shu'ara al-jabayya, which literally means a state and government whose motto is collection of revenues and taxes. But then he talks about the second type of state, which is Daulate uh, al-Hidaya, which means a state or a government whose motto is guidance, propagation of virtue and voice. So here you see it's it's not just, um, I mean, of course, it's, uh, we can talk about whether it's rational or not rational, but ideologically based on the scripts, I mean, conservative Islamic texture, he comes up and says, well, most of the majority of the state and at the moment are the states which are collecting taxes. But an Islamic state, according to him, is not is not just supposed to collect taxes, but it is here to just guide the people. So public morality remains at the core of it. And then when he elaborates what are the core institutions or principles that this Islamic state should have, three things he highlights, independent judiciary, which he's leading now, Islamic army, and Sharia law. So you have Sharia law, which is all about public morality for him, and of course, set of rules, and then army or police is there to enforce it. So to me, uh, when we look at at least this this text, this book, which is written, um, undoubtedly, this clearly uh, outlines for us how Taliban think about the state, Right. I mean, this is so, it's so interesting, right? And I think as you say, there's something very compelling that to present an alternate model of governance, which is anchored in a conception of morality. It's not about materialism and mm-hmm. it's, it's not about rational bureaucracy. It's yeah. about offering a path of, of, of guidance, of of how we all should be living. And, you know, again, I think the the means by which this can be reduced to a few, to a single really prominent bureaucracy with a coercive arm and then a, a simplified code provides a, a very simple, clear roadmap by which citizens and state can interact with each other. And mm-hmm. in theory, 
this should be quite a straightforward way of being able to govern. Because if you can combine a moral code that mobilizes and motivates a certain part of your society and a coercive wing that that scares the rest, mm. this is, seems like quite a good combination, mm. right? A formula by which to construct social control. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's very important to say because what we tend to... Um, make singular the Taliban as if there other aren't other ideologies or modes of social control. You and I are now sitting in the United States and we don't need to take these analogies too far. Yeah. But I think we're we have just seen, for example, uh, a ruling in our Supreme Court mm. that eliminates the women's right to mm. um, access reproductive care. And the possibilities of how much how broad the implications of that ruling one of the conservative justices made clear would be about everything that goes on related to sexuality, essentially, for mm. U.S. citizens, mm. and in particular for women and for people um, who are not heterosexual. And I think, again, this is a, an example of this using a combination of moral arguments that are anchored in morality and the coercive power of the state yeah. to say this is what social control in its most simple form looks like, and that is one basis of governance. Yeah. Now, sociologists like Joel Migdal and others will say this is the most rudimentary form of control because people you don't require people to buy in. You don't require them to participate, and you don't require them to legitimize you in an active way. So it's a it's a costly form yeah. of rule, yeah. and it's a brittle form of rule mm. in which you are not trying to expand your constituencies. You're not trying to be popular. Yeah. You're not, and you're not. You're opening yourself up to forms of opposition that may be very potent over time. That's right, and and um, even if we see. Taliban as an insurgency and how they transformed to um, to an estate that many of us expected a transformation at least in their behavior and the way um, they perceive a state. Um, for example, you if I quote one line from your essay, you says, what little the Taliban did to others local needs involved commandering the ongoing work of other providers. So when I when I read this, this is exactly Taliban of insurgents in the last 20 years. They did it the same way in villages. They didn't provide services. Yes. As you also say, they didn't uh, contest for an election. They didn't uh, hold the election in their own uh, villages or areas that they were controlling. Also now, um, they are not uh, holding any kind of responsibility for themselves. Uh, again, they are commanding on the ongoing work of other providers. It is UN which covering certain services. It is NGOs which is covering certain other services. WHO was, for example, administering certain you know, uh, hospitals. So in that case, Taliban has remained consistent uh, in terms of their uh, the way they uh, administer whole the society, right? That's absolutely right. And I want to just pause for a moment on the idea that, you know, many people hoped they would shift their approach when they won. And part of what motivated me to write that essay was having conversations with 
political scientists who had studied other insurgencies, other rebel groups that had transformed uh, into, because, you know, winning an insurgency is not a trivial thing. And a number of colleagues, and I'm happy to, you know, share names of authors for those who are interested, a number of colleagues and friends of mine have written on this across the world, different cases. Yeah. And what's striking is when you win, and particularly not only when you beat a government, but for the Taliban, this is not just a simple insurgency. This is a global war in the sense that they defeated the most powerful army in the world. Whether they defeated them militarily or not is not the issue. The point is that the Americans withdrew. So that kind of a victory, mm-hmm. one, one, none of us should have expected that under those circumstances, this group is going to fundamentally transform because they won, right? They won based on sticking closely to their ideological project, sticking Mm -hmm. closely to their approach to coercion over so many years in a very difficult fight. And once they've secured victory, the incentive is to double down, mm. not to moderate, not to accommodate, not to open. Mm. Now, that's a separate, so that's why I don't think the last, you know, nine months should, or now 11 months, however long it's been, should be, shouldn't be surprising to us. That doesn't mean that the, for the reasons that you've just said, there are, there's a kind of perverse genius to their approach of using, for example, the United Nations and other NGOs to do service delivery. Yeah. Because they place the international community in this very awkward, impossible position that if the internationals do not provide these services, people will not have vaccines, people will not have mm. food, and so on. Yeah. But in effect, these internationals then are doing the work of service delivery and allowing the Taliban to take advantage of that without developing its own bureaucratic capacities, without developing its own forms of service expertise. And this is a kind of gift, Mm. right, that the internationals then offer this group. At the same time, I think it's really important to come back to the distinction that you just described between states that are guiding morally and states that are providing taxing and then providing services, which is, you know, I forget who it was within the Taliban leadership early on who said about the food crisis, you know, if people starve, it will, that's the will of God. Yeah. Or if people are hungry, they can devote more time to their, you know, religious practice. That was chief minister of them. That's right. That was the chief minister. This kind of a mentality to me says, even if the internationals withdrew, Hmm. I'm not sure that that even then I don't think the Taliban would have the inclination exactly. to suddenly become a governing yeah. uh, set of governing institutions of the kind that people actually need. Yeah. It's just not part of their political project. Right. And so that means if even if we ask a counterfactual, let's say if peace process unfolded differently and let's say we had a, a political settlement by early August or late August, uh, can we still uh, uh, present this assumption that Taliban might have behaved differently? Because at the beginning of your this intervention, you say it, it is just because how Taliban victoriously uh, defeated the rest, international community. That's why we, d- we should not expect any moderate change. Um, so now I am interested to know, 
is this rigidity only because of the outcome of talks and one-sided victory of Taliban or much more beyond that? It is about how Taliban think and behave. For example, the quotation that we had from Abdullah Akhima Qani. I mean, this is such a million-dollar question, right? I listened to your conversation with Bill Maley about this question, and I've had this conversation with him in various forms before. Mm. Basically, what you're asking is, can we look at a group like the Taliban and think there was a possibility of a negotiated outcome in which they would have changed, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know... Professor Maley argued in his conversation with you, no, that this is not a group from which one can expect a kind of transformation or even an inclination Uh to be open to the possibility of negotiating Mm. an accommodation. I am less certain about that only because I, I don't feel that I know enough about the dynamics within the group yeah. at the time, in those moments when they might have actually felt weaker. Mm. In other words, I think it does matter whether you're winning or losing, mm. how much, who who within the group can be marginalized, who can be empowered. Yeah. I imagine there are conversations within the Taliban. I imagine there are disagreements mm. right, within the Taliban around yeah. these questions. Yeah. I assume there are certain actors who believe in a different set of possibilities. It may be a narrow set of, you know, it may be a narrow frame. I'm not saying there are those who wish to be in a liberal democracy, but there may be possibilities for accommodation that Mm. exist within the group. Right. Those possibilities become completely irrelevant when you're winning militarily, and they may become more salient Mm. when you're losing. This is where I think, you know, there's so many other variables at play that, that you, you and others have talked about. You know, the questions of on the other side of the table. Yeah. What kind of a, how formidable is your opponent? How committed are they to their political project? How coherent is that project? Mm. And what kind of international support exists? What kind of third party guarantees exist? What kind of mediation options are there? Do you have safe haven and sanctuary over Mm, the border, or have you lost your sponsor? Mm. I think for me, the most likely outcome of a settlement would not have been the transformation of the Taliban. It would have been that the Taliban would have been so weakened as to become marginal that some of the individuals within that may have been you could peel those people away and give them a ministry or some set of governorship or, you know, so on. But so long as their ideological project was intact, in other words, so long as they had enough power to hold on to that project, I don't think the project itself is amenable to being part of something like a Republican system of government. Mm. In other words, they are not like just another political party or an ethnic group that yeah. has, you know, certain grievances that could be addressed through territorial gain or mm. through greater representation in a parliament. True. It is a fundamentally different state-building project. So in my mind, it was, this is a group, it's an organization. If you can weaken them to the point where you can 
exploit the fractures internally, you may be able to peel some people off yeah. and make the group so weak that it becomes marginal. Exactly. That, so, to me, would would have been the possibility for a political settlement. Uh, But that's very difficult to do, right? One has to be committed to that in a different way. Exactly. Uh, and uh, and one of the things that strikes me, uh, I think it's related to the, your comment also, is about the structure of Taliban. What you have a subheading in your essay um, titled uh, Clerics in Charge. Um At this moment, also, we see some sort of frac- fractions wherein um, the Haqqani network or the leader of Haqqani network presents itself amendable, negotiable. He had an interview with CNN where he endorsed, uh, for example, um, uh, girls' education. Um, but but at the same time, what I, I mean, most of the policies and the way policies are enforced, what we see is only one group which is at the end of the day, has the final word, and th- those are the clerks. Uh, in your essay, you say the group has been tr- able to somehow conflate uh, the rules of a clerk, a governor, and a police, and probably many other positions. So you cannot, this is the clerks at the end of the day, who is, for example, running the ministries, who is running the courts, who is also enacting laws. Um, so uh, if that is the If that is the case, if clerks are much powerful, who who is also policymaker, lawmaker, enforcer, uh, then uh, do you think still there was possibility of uh, creating divides within the group and, for example, uh, working with some of them? Because at the end of the day, now, to what extent Haqqani um, offers um, uh, a positive solution or says, oh, well, we are open to this, uh, let's say, set of uh, demands, but he's not able to deliver it uh, even now, given the fact that we understand Haqqani is a very powerful faction in the Taliban. Yes, and I think that it's worth dwelling for a moment on the opening of the girls' school, because I think this was This is such an illustrative example. This was the international community from the highest levels of power mm. in, you know, the Western capitals at the United Nations and so on made clear. This is the, besides the concerns of terrorism, this is the number one concern. Let's put it number one, number two concern. Right. That girls should go to school uh, by no ruse time in March. If there was any substantial, powerful faction within the new government that cared about international reputation, that cared about access to money, cared about the possibilities of being globalized, you know, in a contemporary sense, they would have at least made some gesture towards making the school opening possible. And instead, what we saw, as you say, was Some set of individuals seemed to believe that the schools would, in fact, be opened until this meeting happened, and then the decision was made that the schools are not going to open. And there was very little attempt to even dress up that decision as, well, you know, there are logistical questions or so on. Really, it was, you know, we're not opening the schools. Mm. And that's how it was interpreted by the internationals and by the Afghans. And I think correctly so. Again, I think at this point, we 
we simply cannot argue, no matter how par- powerful the Haqqanis may be or how ironically they have become somehow the moderate <laughs> faction or however we yeah. want to frame it, of this group, they clearly were not, whoever was in favor of the girls' schools being open did not have the influence to carry that decision right. through. And the decision was ultimately made at the top in an opaque fashion that none of us will fully understand that this is not happening. Hmm. I think that for me, that is very revealing of the limits of accommodation and negotiation with a group like this. To me, the moments of opening or the possibilities for fractures existed at a very different time. I think they existed, for example, Mm. in 2001 when Mm. the group was defeated. And, you know, there was such a resounding defeat that the the project was effectively appeared to be over, Mm. which, so you're talking about something very different. You're not then asking the Taliban as a movement, as a state building project to compromise its project. You're you're looking at individual leaders, mm. mid-level commanders, rank and file, and saying, your project is over, but this is your country. Do you want to surrender? Do you, some of you have economic aspirations, some of you have political aspirations, some of you have social aspirations, you wish to live, return to where you used to live, and so on. You can surrender, and as individuals become part, return back into the society and become part of this new project. Yeah. As citizens, civilians, or as, as uh, you know, individuals who want to take on more prominent roles. That's a very different idea, which the United States was simply not open to. Right. Right. But that's a very different idea than saying, hmm. you are a fully functional political movement, you might even be the winning political movement, why don't you now sacrifice your project for this project? Mm. Those are two different propositions, and I think the first is viable and the second is not. Not, yeah. Uh, Let me ask another question about your... uh, uh, the seminal book that you wrote, uh, Warlords as Governors. So you uh, have three key... Uh, concepts over there which explains the behavior of warlords when they turn as a state builder and that's the way they use the coercion capital and connection um, as a resource um, to to become a state builder Uh, how about taliban do you also um, read the taliban through the same lens Uh, can we also apply the same concepts to some of these key commanders of taliban or if we consider them as a warlord, that now they are either minister or chief minister or, let's say, um, deputy. Uh, how are they using capital, coercion, and connection with respect to their governance? Well, so, yes, I mean, of course, it was very interesting to me. You know, I first started working on Afghanistan in the summer of 2001 and made my first visit in the summer of 2004 and began studying these Mujahideen commanders who, and I, in the beginning, was looking at them in a lot of different walks of life, as members of parliament and ministers and um, in the private sector and so on. In the end, what I ended up studying for my PhD and my first book was looking at them as provincial governors. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I found that to be the most 
fruitful site of sort of political site in which to study them was because, yes, they had forms of coercive power. They had money, many of them, and they had connection, which is Charles Tilley's concept, which, you know, is sort of being ha- sitting within networks of that are salient in uh-huh. the society, whether those are ethnic or ideational or uh, communal in different ways, forms of solidarity, forms of social connection that a number of these mujahideen had access to, and in certain cases had concentrated access to. You know, they were leaders in their communities. All of that was important to the argument, but the core of the argument really was those actors are threatening to the state-building project unless they have an incentive Mm -hmm. to be part of something bigger than themselves. And the reason that they would have that incentive is if they have competition, right? So if if there are competitors in their midst, they are then looking to be part of something bigger to which they can contribute, but also something that offers them protection and support and that was the the premise that was that's why they entered into these negotiations with the palace in Kabul and even when there were conflicts or disagreements with President Karzai at the time there was a reason why they wanted to be part of something bigger a, a strategic reason but the other thing i think that's very important to say again to come back to the distinction between mujahideen for example and the taliban they also had and i i received a lot of negative feedback mm-hmm. when i was doing my phd fieldwork in 2007-8-9 because a lot of cosmopolitan afghans did not want to hear about these people that they called warlords. They felt, we've turned the page, we're now a democracy, we don't want to mm-hmm. be subject to the kind of crude politics, as they understood them, of these commanders. I was making an argument based on what I saw in the in the provinces, which was, I think many of these mujahideen were notionally committed to this new ideological project. Were they liberal Democrats in the sense of, you know, what the literature mm-hmm. or what in Western capitals we would understand liberal democracy to be? No, maybe not. Yeah. But they were committed to the survival and success of the Afghan state, state. in a way that it fundamentally distinguishes them, for example, from Taliban. Mm-hmm. I think that's why even when they were very powerful. At the time when I was studying them, these were, you know, many of them had tremendous amounts of money and influence in the security sector and other places. They had very close relationships in many cases with Western governments. They were not fundamentally threatening to the Republican project, in my view. Now, there's a lot of disagreement around that, but I believe they were indigenous leaders who were part of the state-building project. Mm. That distinguishes them fundamentally from the Taliban. So, so th- I think, again, mm. at the moment of surrender, had there been that opportunity in 2001, when 
individual Taliban commanders may have been rethinking possibilities and wanted to get in on this new project, I think there were opportunities then to have engaged them Mm. the way one might have other types of warlords, let's call them. Um, But I think that's very different than the current moment. Current moment. So how do you see the Taliban model of governance, apart from uh, their reluctance on providing services that we say it, and and the way uh, their ideology talks about the state, uh, how how do you see Taliban use the state and institutions uh, to uh, administer society overall, uh, not just, for example, schools, hospitals, uh, and big infrastructures. But of course, Taliban are not naive to not understand the rationale of state. They have been able to get hold of all these institutions. Many institutions are gone away. For example, uh, independent human rights commission, uh, election commissions, let's say. But many others are still intact. The the ministries are over there. Um, The chief minister's office uh, is there. Um, Governors are there. Chief of police is there. So uh, give us a bigger picture of Taliban running the state. I mean, I think it's still very early, but at the same time, my, my... You know, as somebody who's obviously not on the ground and now has limited access to those inside, it's harder to mm. tell. But my my sense is they are really not interested in. Mm. They may they may control these these institutions, but yeah. I don't see them interested in governing in that way. I mean, I think it's important if we look back a little bit historically, let's say, and try and put it in comparison to other Afghan regimes. Right. A lot of regimes have survived, if not thrived, without providing substantial services in the countryside. Mm. Now, that was a long time ago, let's say the mid-20th century, right? So I'm not saying, I think there are demands and needs for services and expectations for them in the public that have, that are very different than they were some time ago. But I don't think service delivery is, particularly if the international community continues to engage in this way, I don't think their failure to provide services is going to be their downfall. Mm -hmm. I think in a historical perspective, what is striking to me about their mode of governance is it's sort of absolutist approach, again, to defining the public and therefore also defining what is private, what goes on in the private, in mm. such strict terms. You mm. know, And others have written about, the, have compared and thought about the other organ, the other regime that governed in such an extreme fashion was, you know, at the other end of the ideological spectrum was the Marxist yeah. um, government, right? The communist government in Mm. the 70s and in the 80s. And that, uh, or you can go even further back to, you know, the period of of Amanullah in the 1920s, times when regimes felt that they had the responsibility and the right to go into the lives of mm. ordinary people and tell them you are going to radically reorganize how you live on our terms and you are not going to have a say. And we are not interested in accommodating other ideas. We're not interested in, in accommodating other elites. Mm-hmm. This is now going to happen on our terms. 
that has consistently produced a revolutionary response, mm. right? And I think for the Taliban, that that feels to me the path that they have chosen. I think, as we've talked about, it's an ideologically elegant model, mm. which means you can, in the beginning, implement it quite quickly and easily, right? It's not complicated. It's not complex. It's five, six things that really matter to you, and you shove them down the throat of the society. Yeah. And in the beginning, they're terrified, and they've lost their own government. They've lost the entire international community, so they will submit to that, because what choice do they have? But I think that produces, in any society, and in the Afghan case in particular, we've seen it repeatedly, a kind of reaction Mm. that is hard to contain Mm. because people don't want to be told by the state that you have to, by the state, that you have to accept something that isn't of of your own culture, it isn't of your own conception of state-society relationships, and you're going to have no say in it. And, you know, people think about democratic politics exclusively as being about elections. And a lot of, there's a lot of interesting political theory work that pushes back against that and says, listen, there are a lot of different forms of political participation that are possible. It's not just about elections. And in Afghanistan, the elections were flawed and fraudulent. And I don't think we need to hold them up as some marker of legitimacy. But there have been many forms of political participation that have been indigenous to Afghanistan across different communities over time, and they have been silenced by this new government. Mm. And I think past governments, the lesson from past governments, which I don't think the Taliban cares to learn, but that doesn't mean it's not true, is that that will get you into trouble with your population sooner Mm. than later. Yeah, for for that, I think we have to have a closer look at how Taliban manages, for example, villages at a uh, very deep local level. Um, I, I came across certain reports which were saying the Taliban, uh, they conducted elections for the um, um, uh, urban districts, in Kabul at least. Uh, they, that's, that, that came through the Taliban accounts in Twitter. Uh, Kabul municipality. Yes. Uh, so if that is somehow, I mean, I don't know to what extent this is universal across Afghanistan, the Taliban allowing um, all local communities, either in urban or villages, to to hold elections and have their own, for example, either Malek or Wakil or, or something, that might present certain flexibility. Uh, and well, that is promised by those who are speaking on behalf of Taliban uh, at certain level. But that I think we have to wait and see how it comes, uh, uh, how it unfolds throughout the year, probably. But um, what strikes me also is uh, the way you say Taliban are going against some of the other traditional, probably models of political participation or the notion of what we are. And this is uh, I think the essentialist understanding of what an Afghan is and how Taliban, whether they are or not uh, the same identity. Mm. This mm-hmm. is what you engage is, uh, your critique about uh, Malkizian is that he presents a quite singular uh, meaning of what an Afghan is because uh, Malkizian assumes that the Taliban strength and success has been that they 
had um, something which is quite uh, enshrined in Afghan identity, and they followed the strictly the same thing. Now, you are saying that, no, they are not doing that. Um, they have been departing from certain traditions, customs, political participations, or even in certain values that at the beginning of this talk, you say Taliban ideology is quite strange to Afghanistan. Um, how do we understand this dynamic of, um, in terms of norms of identity and legitimacy of the Taliban, whether they are Afghan or not? Yes, yeah, so this is, um, you're referencing Malkasian's argument, which was a multi-pronged argument in which he acknowledged there were many causes for the trajectory of the American war in Afghanistan. But one of them which he chose to highlight was this idea that the Taliban captured some sense of Afghanness or something Afghan in a way that allowed them a kind of allergy to occupation, a, mm. a sort of allegiance to Islam, uh, that allowed them to rally in a way that, you know, the Republic, which was uh, seen as a kind of client of the West, did not have access to that kind of essential mm -hmm. um, identity claim uh, for a kind of authenticity of being Afghan and therefore was in a fundamentally weaker position as were obviously all of the foreign forces. And my, my response to that was twofold. One, my understanding, I don't have any clear idea of what it means to be Afghan. Yeah. I, through, from my own experience of spending time in the country and studying the politics, there are profound debates and mm -hmm. differences, as I understand them, around what the state, how the state should be organized with respect to levels of centralization and decentralization, what, who should be in power, what kind of uh, configurations of representation along ethnic or sectarian lines should exist, mm -hmm. what the foreign policy of the government should be, how, what the relationship should be between Islam and secularism. The whole range, as in any other country, the whole range of opinions exists about what it is to be an Afghan and what that means for how the state should be structured and the society should be organized. So that's the first point. Right. The second point is that I saw in my own work of studying the Mujahideen, who are the sort of sworn enemy of the Taliban, many of the same impulses that Malkasian attributed to the Taliban in, those, in their enemies. Mm -hmm. I saw in the in members of the republic uh, many of the same attributes, in yeah. supporters of the republic many of the same attributes, in supporters of the opposition to the Ghani government, but still people who associated themselves with republicanism, many of the same attributes. The, the idea that people across the country, for example, would be incensed by something like Guantanamo, by the civilian casualties and the loss of life where the Americans were operating, that people would, those same people would simultaneously be incensed by 
the tactics of the Taliban as an insurgency did not seem to be at odds for me. You know, one can be upset at many different forms of injustice or the implications of occupation or of neo-imperialism of the kind the Americans practiced and still not be uh, radical or extremist or trying to overthrow one's government. Mm -hmm. And so I think that for me was problematic as well. The third thing I would would say is that, you know, there's a lot of debate about how indigenous is the Taliban, which I think is a very interesting question. You know, clearly mm -hmm. there are elements of it that are very much anchored in what is what it is to be Afghan for those particular people. But also there are, of course, elements of being sponsored by the Pakistani security establishment. There are relationships to transnational uh Networks. groups in which people may associate themselves with a larger conception of jihad or being a Muslim in a sense that transcends being Afghan. So I think this, there's a complexity in the movement itself mm. that's worth also attending to that doesn't allow the movement to simply stand for what it is to be Afghan. Yeah. So that's sort of my, my response, you know, in various forms. To, to that argument. Right. So, but still, Taliban do have a claim that they are purely Afghan and representing the indigenous notion of Afghanhood, irrespective of the material dimension of the support that they get from other external factors and actors like Pakistan. Uh, on ideational dimension, the way they define a state, of course, I understand you're against an essentialist understanding of any identity, including an Afghan, and I am also. Uh, but how can we? rebuttal Taliban or tell them that what you claim mm -hmm. to be an Afghan is not correct and you are, for example, some <laughs> so many say, well, Taliban are not simply not Afghan. Don't you think this is also simplistic to exclude everything, uh, to exclude Taliban Absolutely. from Afghanhood? I mean, this is an argument that over the years I've had with many Afghan friends who wanted to see the Taliban simply as a proxy mm of Pakistan, and I think that was hugely detrimental right. um, from an analytical point of view, but also from a strategic and military and political point of view to mm -hmm. not recognize the, the rootedness yeah. of this movement, mm -hmm. in both in ideationally, as you say, within certain communities or certain segments of the society, but also just demographically connected to, uh, you know, if we come back to the idea of connection, of Tilly, anchored in certain social networks. Mm -hmm. And also, to, to give credit to Malkasian's point on this, at least in part, the product of a response on the part of ordinary people to what it is to live through a, a neo-imperial war. Mm -hmm. Right. And to have to to suffer the consequences of being invaded by the Americans and their allies. I think there that we cannot discount that as not Afghan. Yeah. But also a set of values that they try to the Taliban try to exclusively define Afghan and try to uh, universalize the same set of values on on every single individual and citizen in Afghanistan. That is also something which is quite problematic uh, because that 
that is essentialist itself. That is defined based on a narrow, rigid, and changeable characters. Um, for example, the way a cultural war, of course, Taliban is also waging a cultural war in Afghanistan. It's not just about religious norms. It's much more beyond the religious norms. Um, rebranding the identity of Afghanistan, rebranding uh, the language, uh, custom, cultures. Um, that is all, I think, we cannot neglect all of this to say, well, these are Pakistanis or Punjabis. I think the nationalist narrative in Afghanistan tends to externalize all of these factors. I think that's very, it's very important to say that, Omar, because I think one of the things that to me differentiated the Karzai government from the Ghani government was, you know, I have to say that when I was doing fieldwork in the Karzai period, there was much less conversation around, for example, sort of essentialized ethnic mm -hmm. identities. Mm. And what I noticed in the years of the Ghani government was a steady kind of narrowing of yeah. what does it mean to be an Afghan. Mm. Mm. And who will be the beneficiary yeah. of that. Yeah. And what I think is striking are the, actually the similarities between that narrow conception of being Afghan and the Taliban. Right. Of course, the ideological differences between the Ghani government and the Taliban are very obvious yes. along many dimensions. No doubt. But one thing that is similar is a concentrating of the idea of power being increasingly concentrated within a narrower and narrower set of elites mm -hmm. who represent a narrower and narrower version of what it is to be an Afghan. Yeah. And that is, that cannot be blamed on some other country or some radical geopolitical project. Yeah. Or even I think it cannot be blamed on, you know, Western intervention. Yeah. That is an, in, that is an indigenous conversation that is going on. Mm -hmm. And I think that both those regimes in that way were failing to represent and being very much out of touch with huge segments of Afghan society. And I would describe the Ghani government as brittle along that dimension in very much the same way that the, the Taliban is. I think there's real continuity actually there. Yeah, yeah. So, so we, we covered so many issues and to the end of this conversation, connecting all of these dots and, and, and points together, uh, the Taliban has this narrow understanding of identity. They don't have a sense of responsibility for the state. Uh, their ideology is narrowly, religiously totalitarian, and international. They are free riding international community on terms of uh, money uh, functions of the state. So, um, what to do with them now? Um, both, I mean, tell us as a citizens of Afghanistan what they should do with Taliban, and then secondly, international community. They should continue the same way that they are doing now, or something different. Well, you know, I would never presume to tell Afghans what they should do yeah. internally, mm -hmm. nor nor would I um, ever second second guess the how people react to or respond to such a profoundly difficult set of circumstances. Mm. Um, you know, 
either for people like you who have lost everything and now you know are rebuilding your life or those who are still still there um but i'm in solidarity with all of you and all of them i and i am also of the belief as i said that i think that the possibilities for and this is where i think it connects to the outsiders the possibilities for indigenous collective forms of of resistance and alternate political projects is always there mm. and it's already happening whether mm. we know it or pay attention to it or not it's it it is I think endemic to that place, but I also think it's it's part of what it is to be human. Mm. Um, and my few conversations that I you know have with people who still are there reflect that. Mm. Um, and I think that's very important for the internationals to understand. I you know my main grievance with my own government, but also all the others that intervened, is this incredible arrogance about how much we could control, shape, define on our own terms, Yeah, and the hypocrisy of then being prepared to just drop it once we became bored, tired, mm. uh, frustrated, distracted by something else. Mm. There's such a, that's such a part, that kind of dual, you know, what I call kind of political schizophrenia is such a part of American foreign policy making that you're fully in and you have the highest ridiculous expectations and Mm. then you're out when you're, Mm. when Mm. you feel disappointed. It's a very immature, I Mm. think, impulse, the kind of neo-imperial impulse. Yeah. So I think now... So much of what needs to happen outside of Afghanistan is to reflect on the profound number of errors and mistakes and crimes, you know, that were committed by outsiders. But I think there's the small sense of um, optimism that I have is that I don't think there's an inclination to accept the crumbs that the Taliban are offering and normalize that. I think that in a way, because the Taliban has remained so wedded to its project mm. in the terms that we've been talking about, it it is sobering enough to the international community, so-called, to say, let's not move too quickly to make this seem like it's okay. Yeah. Whether that's for Afghan women or it's for questions of international security more broadly and so on. Mm. So, you know, I think it's an incredibly difficult challenge to figure out how to stay in solidarity and support of the Afghan people without legitimizing their government. It's not an easy thing. Mm. The impulse on the part of Americans is often to fully isolate countries as a function of their regimes. And we know that, you know, whether that's Iraq, Iran, Cuba, like... North Korea, that doesn't, that's not a terribly effective approach. Yeah. On the other hand, I think those who are concerned about the Taliban are not, are very worried that they will somehow become the status quo in a way that will seem acceptable over time. And I think it's incumbent on all of us who 
know Afghanistan, have connections to Afghanistan, to keep reminding our government this mm. is this is problematic and needs to be handled with a kind of sophistication and subtlety of which you are not usually capable. Yeah. But after 20 years of producing so much of the situation, you are responsible for what comes next. It is not something somewhere far away that's not of your concern. You are responsible to pay attention and to take care and to listen to people who know mm. how what is happening actually on the ground and what will be the implications of your actions, whether they are neglectful or engaging. Right. So on this note, uh, may I also ask you at the end if you can suggest probably your listeners one, two good readings about uh, all of these, including, for example, Taliban and the way out, uh, how to engage with Afghanistan. Happy to make some recommendations. Well, let me. I mean, I have to be blunt and say I'm not a huge fan of most of <laughs> what has been written on the Taliban. It's just an incredible, been a very difficult group to study. And yeah. but I will say that there is a very there's an old piece by Juan Cole on the Taliban from when it ruled in the 90s, mm-hmm. which uses the concepts of the public and the private and their approach to treating female citizens, Uh which I think is an excellent insight into Juan Cole. Um, And I will pull up the title of the piece for you. And in the meantime, the um, the other piece of work that I think... So much of what we need to be reading is, as, as Westerners, this is to the Western listeners and your audience, is understanding our own role in this. And for that, one of my favorite um, books is Noah Coburn's book called Bazaar Politics, yeah. which I think reveals a great deal about the difference between the vision that outsiders had of what they thought they were doing. Mm. Uh, and the ways in which politics were actually functioning, which were sophisticated, rational, and actually highly adaptive in the community of Salif, the town that he did his ethnography. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is a, that's a very insightful book about how little we as outsiders understood, and I'm always humbled myself uh, in thinking about how how little I understand about Afghanistan, having tried so hard to understand it for so long. The piece by Juan Cole, I'll just give the title, is The Taliban Women and the Hegelian Private Sphere. And it appeared in the journal Social Research in in 2003. Thank you. Um, And I think that's quite an insightful piece as well. And of course, I encourage everyone um, to read your work. And I also just want to put out a plug for going forward an edited um, volume, which will include the work of many um, young Afghan scholars um, that Anna Larson, Omar Sharifi, and I are currently editing, Yeah, uh, which will reflect on the questions of power in politics, but largely produced by young Afghan scholars. Right. We're very excited. Looking forward to that one. But thank you so much, Deepali John. I really enjoy it, and I'm sure... Our listeners will also enjoy this uh, podcast and this episode. Uh, I'm really grateful for your time. 
Thank you so much, Omar. I always learn so much talking to you. I'm so glad to have had the chance. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast and make sure to share it with your friends on social media. Talking to you soon in the next episode. Have a good time.